Welcome to Dances for Buildings, the podcast where we hear the ups, downs and left turns that make up the life of a DJ. Just so you know, this episode does contain some strong language. I'm Emily Dust. I'm a DJ, curator and documentary maker. I've always loved meeting people through music and I've always loved travel as well. And I love talking to other people about it. I always find that when I talk to other DJs about their experiences, we have some really interesting conversations. So this series is us having those chats on record. It's about travel through the lens of club culture and it's about perfecting the art of DJing. This episode is a brilliant listen for anyone who's starting out or looking to grow your career. Joining me is my good friend and amazing DJ Jam Supernova. She's a BBC Six music presenter. She runs her own label Future Bounce. She's been a Mercury Music Prize judge and she's launching her own podcast this year so keep an eye out for that. Jam started out on community radio at a station called Represent in South London. She's got some brilliant advice for people starting out, but also some advice for more seasoned DJs, like how not to come off the back of legendary DJ Norman Jay. And we also talked about why booking agents aren't always the be-all and end-all of your career. Jam's has also got a daughter, she's called Forrest, and so we talked about the balance between mum life and DJ life when we had this chat at the end of last year. Here she is. Jam Supernova, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. It is so lovely to talk to you on this. We talk all the time, but it's really nice to like get you down on record talking about <laughs> DJ stuff. Formally. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And um I I like feel like I've known you since before you were a DJ. Mm-hmm. And I think when I first started doing gigs again, I remember asking you, like I was doing some bar in Brixton. And I was like, do you want to come and DJ? And you were like, oh, I can't actually mix yet. So I'm just going to wait. I was like, that doesn't matter. You like, you were like, no, no, no. I want to wait and learn and do it properly. And I was quite impressed because I'd like DJed for a bit, then stopped, but I'd never like learned to mix. And I was learning at that point. And I was like quite impressed that you were like holding back until you were ready. I always thought that was like a very confident way to like come into DJing. Oh, that's interesting. I don't remember that. <laughs> because I, if, if I heard that now, I wish I would have been more, I think that was maybe in a bit um, sort of maybe ego protective kind of um, building the craft up to be something that I could never achieve. So if I would be that person again, I probably would have said, I'll just go for it. Just you, you, you're going to learn on the job. I think I was very, mu- very much like it has to be perfect before I can step out. And then the moment I did step out and do that first gig, I could only mix that set. So when they asked me for old school R and B, I was like, <laughs> I, 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 I can't. That's <laughs> but it's like um, I think you always learn on the job anyway. Because yeah. I was I was like playing tunes without any beat matching skills whatsoever, and like looking at the crowd and doing that thing. Mm. But then I was like, I can't. Like as I started to refine what I wanted to do, um. I couldn't mix it in a way that sounded good. Yeah, yeah. So I play like all these random things together without any any way of kind of making them tighter. So I guess we all get there in our own ways. But you started like I mean you went you went to the Brit school which is, you know, like a performing arts school in South London. Uh there's like alumni from Adele and Amy Winehouse, Gemma Kearney, like so many people. Did you always kind of know that you wanted to DJ? 
not DJ. I wanted to be a TV presenter first. That was my initial aim to go to the Brit School because they had a media department and a TV studio. And then once I got there, I saw the radio studio and I was like, oh, wow. Oh, I never thought of this. And I was like, I listen to radio. I've always listened to radio all the time. That's like my, you know, my the way that I hang out at home, you know, was, was a lot of radio and internet based sort of activities um, in my bedroom, you know, just sort of chilling, doodling, listening, that sort of thing. And then so how did you then decide that DJing was something you wanted to do and at what point? I always wanted to learn how to DJ. Like I remember going to a youth club um, when I was like 15 and they had the decks out and like going on the decks. And I remember even People's Day is like a picture of me. People's Day is like a community day that happens in Lewisham every year up on um, up on like the sort of, uh, I think it's like Healy Fields and um, in South East London. And I, there's a picture of me, you know, on the decks at 10. So I always wow. had it there. Yeah, and I wasn't on the decks, you know. So I'd always had this sort of interest. My uncle used to DJ and my great uncle used to DJ. Um, and I'd always had this interest in DJing, but I thought that because I spent a lot of my teens playing football, that was my sort of extracurricular passion, and I didn't really have much time to do anything else. So I thought that because I hadn't learned how to DJ at 15, then I could just never, it's never going to happen. I'm never going to learn. I'm, I'm, I'm too old now. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> what I thought at 23. It's ridiculous. So I was 23 so when I, yeah, when I eventually started and it was, I was forced, it was forced upon me um, by um, Gavin G. Child, who's a, a great DJ, a great mentor to many um, of the radio yes. generation that have come through, sort of starting with me and then after me. Um, yeah. He was like, you know, you're going to need to learn how to DJ. You, you want to be specialist broadcaster you need to learn how to dj because what if you get booked and you can't dj that people won't take you seriously as a specialist broadcaster so that was mm. the sort of um the steps from there really he sold me his decks i paid him off um in, installments yeah there was uh 1000 mark twos and um paid him off in installments had serato that i bought from a friend because she wasn't using it and then i set up in my living room and um that's where it began really i love that story because it's like such a I think now people maybe look at, the, well, for the start, you can like DJ on your phone and learn mm. to beat match with an app, which, you know, even like when you were learning, it wasn't that long ago. But I just think it's nice because sometimes people can get hung up on the equipment and like, oh, I must have like the best thing or I must have this thing. And it's like, actually just get what you can and then learn and then you can learn yeah. what you like. Yeah, exactly. And exactly. And when you started, you were like known for playing Future Beats. You had the documentary that went out on Radio mm. One that like really shone a spotlight on the scene. Um, but now you're like, you're known for playing such a huge range of genres. Like mm. your label puts out everything from soul and R&B to kind of like really heavy percussive club and like techno. And then you've got, you know, sort of a broken beats world. And I wondered how you kind of went about diversifying and becoming known for playing a broader range of music like was that a conscious decision and if so like how did you manage to like change people's perceptions of what you were known for yeah that's a really good question actually um because sometimes we forget the journey up until that point and I think a lot of it was that actually I loved music but I wasn't a, a specialist actually to begin with I was just a music lover you know I just sort of loved you know music in general and kind of what was new that was kind of where the angle that I was coming at and then the more and more I kind of got into it so when I started on represent I was doing a, I was basically copying Mr Jam and I was taking all of his music and then replaying it on represent because I had access to it because I was doing work experience at BBC so I'd burn the CDs <laughs> then take them to Cheeky. represent yeah 
And then I sort of, yeah, and then I was kind of doing like a daytime vibe on Represent. Then I discovered SoundCloud. And then I think that's sort of what refined my taste a little bit within, you know, I thought I love R&B, but no, I love this kind of R&B, you know. Mm. Or, and then that opened up a portal to electronic music. So whilst I'd been raving to like UK funky, sort of passively raving to UK funky and enjoying it, I think what I always really loved was the vocal element of it. Um, and mm. I'd sort of dabble in some dubstep raves with some friends as well. But I never, you know, a lot of my friends then went on to get into like, you know, minimal techno or, or go to the house raves and things like that. And I never really, it was always the soulful element that sort of stayed with me. But I think from the SoundCloud Future Beats world, that is what kind of opened the portal for me into electronic music and wider, wider genres. But I think what allowed me to diversify was honesty. Mm. to be honest and say oh my god I've never heard this before oh I never thought I'd be into this before or oh my god I, like you know this is this feels new to me and to be yeah. and to say that to the listeners and to say that to people and to be enthusiastic that it felt new even if if even if they were established genres like jazz for example yeah you know yeah it's quite a different um, mindset for like a specialist presenter to not know everything yeah and that's the feedback that I get is what people are always like, oh, we feel like we're learning with you. Yeah. Um, and it makes it feel inclusive to people. We're not, not assuming that people would know it. And it's authentic. I guess it, in a way it helps you to broaden out what you play and what you do because people aren't like, hang on a minute, when did she become an expert on that? They're yeah. like seeing it happen in real time. I remember you saying, I can't remember what interview it was, but I remember you saying like you had no idea that jazz was a black genre. And I was like really surprised by that because like, I grew up listening to jazz. My dad is a huge jazz fan and my mum, but like more mm. my dad. And so for me, like jazz was always something and my husband's a saxophone player. So get a lot of like jazz stuff from him. But I was like, I think it's, some, it's a genre that I've kind of always known about. And for me, it was so startling and obvious in hindsight like because the jazz gigs that I would go to were all like seated gigs at the Barbican where everyone clapped politely mm. at the end which is like the worst place you could go and see Robert Glasper and um yeah I was really startled by that when you said that and I thought gosh that's really like a shame for jazz that it's become known like that but also like how brilliant that there is this new scene and that people like you are championing it and bringing it to a new audience who yeah. are like it's kind of coming back into what it's meant to be which is like music to party to yeah same with electronic music you know i think um 2020 was a real awakening um mm. in terms of rediscovering the origins of these sounds like i remember the boom of dance music you know dance music has had its its, its cycles in the uk but i specifically remember um dance music having a real moment it would have been around 2000 2012, 2013, you started having your Route 94s, having, you know, hits and things like that. Mm. And at the front of those, um, the front leading broadcasters were, you know, your Danny Howards, your your Annie Max, your Pete Tongs. And I'd be working on those shows and thinking, oh my God, it's like, this is just no place for me. I'm mm. really thinking that this, 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 this genre, this, this movement, this, this, this thing felt very white to me. Yeah. And didn't feel very accepting. And I go to Ibiza and everybody's white and you go to Coco and everybody's white and everybody's white everywhere, you know. Mm. Um, and without knowing that the people that they were playing, actually a lot of those classic songs were black artists. Mm. So I feel like there's been a lot of like, and I think it's about access as well. Like I think jazz, that's a class thing, you know. Yeah. That's a class that's thing. True. That's 100% a class thing. I think um, electronic music, you know, that the, the my formative years were whitewashed, you know, mm. when I, when, if you think about when, you know, Fabric talk about after 2010, the next decade, they hardly had any, you know, black headliners. 
God, um, really? On their I lineup. Didn't, I yeah. didn't know that they'd said that. That's, I mean, fair play to them for sort of owning up to it, but that's terrible. Yeah. You know, they'd hardly any, not any, you know, hardly no, any. But still. You know, compared to what it had been the previous mm. 10 years. So there was a sort of, yeah, a, whether a purposeful or unpurposeful sort of, yeah, whitewashing. Um, and I think that had I have, yeah, had I have known about that sort of thing, it wouldn't have felt like, I'm an electronic DJ too, please see me in the electronic space. I'm, I'm here, I'm here. So I do think, yeah, whilst I was able to diversify and grow over time, and I think in hindsight, looking back, it's it's been good, but there were moments when like, people would be like, she, she's a grime DJ. She can't play. What? At, yeah, I know. She can't play. <laughs> she can't play at this um, house night with us. Or they'd be like, yeah, but what does she really play? You know. Um, so yeah, I think it's been long and hard, but I think I'm glad I've sort of stuck to who I am and, and, and what I believe in. And I think there were just little sort of tricks and hacks that I did along the way to be able to diversify, whether it was having you know, club jams mixes where it was essentially it does what it says on the tin. Like you might know yeah. me on the radio for soulful sounds. Here is what I do in the club. Like, you know, having yeah. little things like that. Um, and then eventually kind of slowly working club jams on air, you know, bringing those mixes on air. Um, but yeah, I think the six music, that was like a real moment of everything coming together. Mm. All sides of me kind of unapologetically, you get the mix, you get the jazz, you get the electronic, you might get a soulful song thrown in there. You know, I've kind of got the, the the freedom to be all those things. And do you feel like there's um, there's more of a place for you and other black DJs in dance music now? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, a hundred percent. I do. I, I I think there's been a lot of sort of like relearning, you know, from you know institutions um, and us as as DJs and communities learning as well and kind of holding our own and um, building, you know, sort of, I guess, alliances and communities and kind of pushing forward. So I definitely think there is more of a more of a space, 100%. I just, yeah, I just feel sometimes a little bit sad that, you know, I worked at a black station for, from the age of 19, and at no point did they say, hey, this is our music too. And spe speaking of the fact that you did work at a black station for so long, you were a producer. Mm. How did you go about like positioning yourself? Because in the sort of olden days of like the nineties, it was like a big divide between like talent and production who were also talent, but often don't get seen that way. Mm. How did you, how, and I think that's also relevant for a lot of people across the creative industries. Um, I don't know if you've read The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron, yeah, but she talks about, mm. yeah, are you? Shadow artists. Mm. Yeah, shadow artists. So she talks about shadow artists who are like, um, people who want to do a thing and they're not quite brave enough to do the thing so they work in a very similar position so say you want to be an artist you end up being an artist manager mm. or say you want to be a radio presenter you end up being a producer and it's very hard to move from being a shadow artist to like an artist how did you like mentally for yourself but also in terms of how people see you how did you kind of go about like positioning yourself and like becoming more known for like DJing and presenting I was very honest from the get-go. The first day I walked into the BBC on my first day of experience, uh, work experience, they said, do you want to be a presenter or do you want to be a producer? And I said, I want to be a presenter. I think I'd read somewhere, like, you should always be, like, clear of your intentions because if you're not clear of your intentions, then people feel like you kind of cheated them if you're not open with your intentions. Obviously, your intentions can change, um, but that's just something that I read. So I was very honest. And then she said to me, all right, well, let's see, how, let's see if you still want to be a presenter after two months of your work experience. And on the last day of my work experience, she said to me, 
do you want to be a producer or do you want to be a presenter? I said, I want to be a presenter. So that was kind of, I think it was always very clear um, that I wanted to be on air. However, I think I was very diligent. And another thing that I'd learned from Angelica Bell, actually, randomly, she'd done a talk and I'd gone to it. And she was like, you know, it's okay to want to be on the other side of things, but make sure you get the job done first. Like if your job totally is to make tea, really good advice. Yeah, if your job's to make tea, you make the good tea, you make the best tea, you bring that tea over and, you know, don't don't be trying to bring the tea and be talking about what you're trying to do. You know, like there'll, there'll be a moment that if you do your job really well, that people will open up their time to you. Mm. I think if I had been rubbish on the production side, then I don't think I would have got as much like love from, from people that I respected and the time from them and them putting me on. You know, there was a lot of that. But over the years, I had to definitely scale down how much I worked at the BBC because sometimes you can start to be seen as like furniture and then, you know, everybody else was more exciting and shiny, shinier than me, um, even though... I was kind of getting better and better. Um, so I had to basically start becoming invisible there and start working there less and less. And then people would be like, what's she doing? What's she doing? Oh, she's got this Sean represent that everybody's going on. And everyone's talking about this Sean represent. Da, 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 da. So I just had to kind of like really, really sort of like moonwalk out of the building and increase what I was doing outside of the building in terms of visibility. Um, but it was long. Yeah, five years. It was hard. It was long. But I'm yeah, glad. Good advice for anyone who is thinking about transitioning within the industry, I think. Did you have any, uh, I love I love asking this question because everybody mm. says yes and then tells a good story. Did you have any awful gigs when you were either starting out or more recently? Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, when I was starting out, that first gig I'll never forget because like I said, I had a pre-prepared set of what I wanted to play. It was a queer night called Booty Bakery. And um, when I got it's there- a great name. <laughs> it's a really good name, wasn't it? It was at the- um, <laughs> the Macbeth pub uh, in, in, in East London. And when I got there, I was ready, you know, excited. Um, yes, I've still got pictures of me from that first day, actually. And um, I went on and then they were like, can you start with old school R&B if the crowd really want old school R&B? And I was like, I... Okay, cool. So I started playing like old school R&B, but you can't play old school R&B if you don't know how to mix old school R&B. Like it's a very specific way of mixing R&B. I'd been mixing Describe, like, how do you mix it? You go have on. to know the songs and every beat pattern is different and not every song's going to go together. You know, you can, there's just different ways of mixing. It's not a 4-4. Four, four. I'd been learning 4-4, four, four, you know, pretty much house e house leaning music, like 4-4 four, four, four to the floor. That was kind of what my set, I mean, I think even in my set was Skepta and Swedish House Mafia. Um, not old school RB by any stretch. No, I've I've forgotten it, but yeah, I can't remember what it's called now. But but um, just the combo, it means it, that's not telling me old school RB. No, it wasn't. It wasn't, and that, that was quite <laughs> forward thinking for its time, by the way. Skepta and Swedish House Mafia. Um, <laughs> for the record, for the record, yeah, for the record. But um, yeah, and then I, so I started playing old school RB, but I'm just like clanging it out because I don't know what I'm doing, and, I, and you know, I've only been DJing for six months, but only playing the same. 10 songs so I only knew these songs so basically yeah and I just remember at the end slowly I moved into the set that I knew off by heart and then the security guard came over to me at the end he was like it got better oh <laughs> <laughs> so yeah that was um yeah that was a real baptism of fire um I'm trying to think of other like worse gigs I always like feel like if you impress the security guards you're kind of winning yeah I don't think I impressed him I think he was just um just to, just sort of encouraging me. Trying to be me. nice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But like as a sort of measure of how you're doing, 
Of I course, like, yeah, they're dancing. Yeah. yeah, they're good vibes. But you know, even I mean, you, you always have bad gigs. That like, bad gigs don't go. You know, I say I always say out of five, one gig is sick, one gig's great, one gig's cool, one gig's right, one gig is don't ever talk about that gig again. Would you like to talk about some of the ones you're never going to talk about again? Well, I cleared the dance. Yeah, I cleared the dance. At, um, I played on my piano, 2021, Lost Village after um, after J- after Norman J. MBE mm. and uh, it was like the apocalypse. I've never seen people run so fast out of the junkyard. God, <laughs> five thousand people psh, gone, um, running for their lives, literally. That Horr- must have horrified. Been, <laughs> that must have been because obviously Norman Jay is like an absolute legend. Mm. Have you DJed with him before? Yeah, DJed with him the other day, but I actually kept them this time. And and they had to come okay, off the back good. of him now. Yeah. <laughs> how do you come to... off the back of Norman Jay? I think you got a Segway discoy. Right. Yeah. So you just soulful house. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, or more soulful, kind of like more familiar vocals. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it's such a conversation. I feel like in DJ world, there's such a conversation of like, do you just, and the people are always mm. like, just go in and do you. Mm. And like, you know, start with the thing you were going to start with. And mm. it's like, there's such a sort of divide between people who are like, do that and just go, yeah, I'm going to clear the dance floor because I'm uncompromising. And people who go, mm. Do you know what? I'll get to that in like three songs time. Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one. I, I, I think, um, you know, I always think about Mala because if Mala's mm. booked, he ain't, he's not going to come off the back of Norman Jay and play dubstep and play disco. He's playing <laughs> dubstep. You know, I always think about him. However, I think as a DJ, I'm not known for one specific sound. And I yeah. think that as I've developed as a DJ and as I've grown and my crates have grown, I can come out of Norman Jay now and I can get yeah. to I'm a piano when I get there. You know, I will get there. And yeah. sometimes like, you know, but now, I, but also I'm more known now as well, you know, maybe 2021 to that Lost Village audience, I wasn't as well known. So mm. now I might do with something where I've got like an opener, where if I want to reset it, I reset it with an opener that really is going to grab your attention. And it's a sort of dubby sort of ident that of poem by Ryder Shafiq kind of about what, oh, you can, what you can expect <laughs> sort of thing. Oh, amazing. Yeah. What, yeah. have you got him to record that specially for yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, I got it for That's the summer. That's so cool. Yeah, it's brilliant. I love it. I love it. It's a real, yeah. real great way to start a set. And you see people like, oh, oh, yeah. They're like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's cool. But um, yeah, I, yeah, I, it's, a tr- it's a tricky one to know whether to reset or to, or to follow on. Um, and sometimes when someone ends on 160, like there's no, you know, there's no, there's no, um, there's no, there's no following on because if I don't play 160 and if I start a 160, we're not. That's Everyone's going to get tired. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so currently, if someone was coming to London and they wanted like a good night out for your type of music, whatever like side of yourself you're planning to play, like where would you, like where have you had some really great experiences DJing in London? For me, yeah, Peckham, Peckham is where it's at, and I would take you to, you know, Carpet Shop or Peckham Audio or to Jumbi or to Tola. Um, you know, Peckham for me, that strip and 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 that area is kind of what I'm loving. And they're all quite small capacity clubs as well. It's quite exciting to have so many clubs in that area, for, like that play kind of similar music. Yeah, definitely. Or, or feels, similar lineups. Yeah, definitely. It feels culturally relevant. It feels like a cultural hub for sort of left of leaning electronic music kind of wherever that takes you you're not gonna it's not just your standard sort of house and techno strip um you're gonna get some interest in cultural um sort of fusions of, of music and, and i think and a kind of inclusive dance floor i would say as well
we've reached the part of the podcast called Crossfade, where we try and bring the two disparate sides of DJ conversation together. So quick fire round. Mm-hmm. Sync or no sync? No sync. Terrible. <laughs> Pioneer or Alan and Heath? Pioneer. <laughs> Day job or DJ full time? I don't know if I'd want to be just a DJ full time. I like having other things, so I, I like to have a day job. Should producers DJ and should DJs produce? Both. Should DJs publish their track listing? Yes. Is there a limit to the number of edits that DJs can acceptably play in a set? I'm snobby, so I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say yes. It's, it's killing me right now. But but also, I need to not be a dick. Like It's killing me, but I need to not be a dick. So I would say yes, but... Be, What's the limit? I would say just like, I don't know. You know the limit. If your set is only made up of edits, I think you should think about how to keep an audience we've taken out a few so to take you know we've all been there but i have to understand i have to i have to also remember that it's a starting point for many mm. what is your panic tune if you've accidentally cleared the dance floor depends on the on the on the night and the what who's who <laughs> it depends which crate i'm jumping into um oh 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 do you know it's baraka som system a hangover but 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 it's a sam inter- interface special edit of it sweet Ah, oh, exclusive yeah what's your favorite effect Oh, dub echo. And which is And better? spiral 3-4. Sorry. Spiral 3-4? Yeah. Niche. <laughs> which is better, home you or away? Away. Okay. Which brings us nicely onto part two. <laughs> what was your first gig abroad? So my first abroad gig um, was a gig in in Finland. Actually, it's coming back to me now, and I remember it. And I'd met, you know, met a friend through SoundCloud. We've been sort of supportive of each other. Um, and I think when they'd come over to the UK, I had hosted them, and the idea was that I'd go to Finland and and in Helsinki, and play with them. Um, and then when I got there, my friend Robbie came with me because he was like, "Yeah, I'm up for it." Like, so it was really nice to have someone that was up for like 24 hours in Helsinki. Um, <laughs> and then when I got there. Um, basically yeah there was a tram strike so there was no like public public transport for for Helsinki so like I basically played yeah to nobody um, when I was there but I had a really fun 24 hours being taken for food and just meeting people and talking to people and I actually think that's quite a good gig to have because there's no expectations like you know I played it wasn't great in terms of the club night but it was a good thing for me to enter the the foreign market to know that not every gig's going to be sick and also these people don't know who you are half the time you're going places you know you're getting booked to go to different countries like half the time people don't know who you are and you're having to 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 win them over so now I have no expectations when I travel interesting and now you like you know you obviously play far more regularly you played to massive crowds you played like I mean so many of the major festivals in Europe Mm. you played like and you recently like toured Australia and the States, which we'll get into in a minute. But um, when you do play abroad, like how much do you uh, feel like you have to represent UK sounds and how much is that like how much do you tailor things to like a local crowd? I think people have the expectation of wanting to hear UK sounds if they're going to go and see a UK DJ. So I just find the ways to sort of, you know, plot it in. And I think there's an interesting thing that I remember learning from when I played in Johannesburg you know, I was really inspired by the sort of SA Guam sound at the time. Um, and I, yeah, my set didn't really quite work in Johannesburg because the way I was playing at that time 
was very much kind of multi-genre, but in a way like I'm going to play 10 different genres in 10 minutes, you know, from a, a gone track into a grime track, into a house track, into like, you know, to, I think I was just always flexing to show that I could without really thinking about the vibe of the set and how to carry people into different sounds without them realising, um, which is kind of how more I, I play now. But um, I remember when I came off after my set, like this girl was like, I don't know why UK DJs always want to come and, 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 and play what we already know. What she said stuck with me because it's true, actually. Why am I going to play to you what you already know? Yeah. What you already have. We were talking about this with Campire on the podcast and she was saying like, just generally also South Africa's a tough crowd because everyone yeah. is so like the threshold of quality yeah. and the number of subgenres that come out there. It's really like... And especially Johannesburg, where like I was warned off playing like these ten Amma piano songs because everyone's heard them too much. Yeah, which to us they're new and fresh and exciting. So I think now I probably go for, when I go back to you know, I'm going back. I'm going to Cape Town for New Year's. It's not about me doing a, a gom set, you know. Yeah. It might be about me playing a UK leaning set and thinking about how I drop one or two songs in. Yeah. In a creative way, to let you yeah. know that I respect you and I see you and I'm inspired by you, but I'm not trying to emulate you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and and you went yeah you just recently like you went on tour in Australia and America mm. how do you kind of go about organizing the logistics of that one thing I found really interesting um on those tours is that most of the local DJs that went before me wanted to play garage <laughs> they did play garage they're like oh yeah I've got my UKG bag ready for you I was like so that I just found that really interesting I was like okay <laughs> why do you think they did that I think, again, out of a sort of like, I feel you. I, I can play this now. I've got a UK DJ on the lineup. I can finally get to my UK bag. And how did, was it, was it Garage that you were like, why are they playing these tunes? No, or good was Garage. It like no, legit? good Garage. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very good Garage. Yeah, very good Garage. Yeah, they up, up on it, up on what's fresh, the speed Garage, the element. I think they were excited to have a space to be able to play it and it be more received because there was a UK DJ on the lineup. The logistics of... Um, of the Australia and the US tour. So Australia was kind of handled for me. I worked with an external touring partner um, called Astral People, who I've been actually in touch with since like 2018. I've been friends with the with one of the guys that runs the touring company. I was playing, they were a label as well. I was playing their music. Um, I had connected with them every time they came over to the UK. We've been, he was like really adamant on trying to get me over, but was very much like, it's very hard for a radio DJ to tour. If you're producing, it's easier for a UK producer to tour, but it's very hard to, for a radio DJ to have the interest to tour. So he tried to sort of bed me in in 2020 and I went and did a conference in Sydney um, called Electronic Music Conference. And the idea was to play, a, do the conference, play a few shows and then hopefully come back next year. Um, but next year never happened because um, the pandemic. Yeah. Um, so it took another... So you, must have been in, well, so you must have been in Sydney right before the pandemic. No, sorry, that was 2019 I went to Sydney. November 2019. So then wow, it took, yeah. yeah, four years for me to actually wow. get there. So I think that's a good story to tell because it takes a long time. Sometimes you might have an idea of what you want to do. And it, yeah, it literally took four years for me to actualize, actualize touring in Australia. Um, the US, we pulled that together ourselves. Um, uh, I had friends that I knew from the US that gave me like an Excel spreadsheet, thank you Bianca Oblivion, of all these promoters that she'd played with. And I had got my visa. It's the first thing I did at the beginning of 2023. I got my visa, I paid for it. I was like, I have to do at least one tour, otherwise my money's just like, I've lost a year, it's evaporated. So um, 
yeah, we pulled it together ourselves. We used a spreadsheet that Bianca had made. I had another friend, Jubilee, that had invited me to play a gig with her. I was just really open and honest with my US friends. Like, look, I got my visa. I just need one gig to start. Mm. And Jubilee gave I, me that you, one gig. Oh, I love, like, shout out to Jubilee. Um, I, want, I love that you also, like, you know, you're at a level that a lot of DJs can only dream of. You know, you have an agent, you have management, you have a radio show on the BBC and you tour, like, regularly you know seemingly without needing to hustle too much to get bookings coming in not necessarily always the ones you want but there's a flow and I really love the fact that you're so open about like being like you know what let me just do this like one-to-one like DIY like approach it you know you're not too big to kind of like just get your hands dirty and like organize things yourself I think that's a wicked like learning thing for anyone trying to kind of plot their career out yeah and I've had to unlearn that I think I always thought you had to be invited I think there's like this kind of like um I think there's kind of like this in the DJ world it's like I got booked here I got booked here like this is me oh my god like I'm just so popular all around the world and it's like that's not true you know (laughs) I probably could have done that US thing too you know uh, way earlier but I thought that you had to be invited and I thought that if you weren't invited therefore you were not good enough and that's not or true. Or it like, doesn't count somehow. Yeah, it doesn't count. And that's not yeah. true. So I think actually watching someone like a Bianca Oblivion who hustles mad crazy mm. hard, she puts herself in all these different countries all the time. I was like, yeah, I should do that. I could do that too. Yeah. yeah. If, I, if I want to do something and the door keeps saying no, or there is no like obvious uh, route to it. Because I had an agent, you know, and it, it worked for some point and then it didn't work for a while. Um but he always made me feel like they just don't want you. That's and really that was the end that was the really end awful. of the conversation. That there was no like there was no strategy building. It was just like they just don't want you. So I mm. sort of took that on board, I think, a lot. And it was maybe like I decided this year to do everything in the wrong way. In the wrong mm. way. In the in his mm. that would be deemed in the wrong way. I've had agents at points and I've been told the same thing where they're like, You're just not famous enough. I'm like, Well, why did you sign me then? Yeah, like, I had a reverse engineer. Well, also, like, you thought I was good. You saw me play. You know what I do. Yeah. Like, so, why, you know, if I'm not famous enough, why did you bother? And where's the strategy? So it's like, you're not, they don't want you. Let's work backwards. So actually, they don't want you right now. Here's what I think we should do so we can position ourselves to be in a place where um, either they will want you or we won't want them. So let's reverse Mm. engineering. Let's do this tiny show. Let's do that co-headline. Let's do this thing. You know, the strategy. I have a strategy. Hmm. I love that. Like you could, because you once you know that strategy, you can just apply it to yourself and do it without them. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I think um, yeah, with the US thing, I was like, no, I I want to go. I think it's important for me to go. I'm gonna lose money, but I'm gonna make it happen. I I don't know how to get into this, but I just want to like talk just about being a mum. <laughs> I just want to talk about being just a mum in music because in. like we both had kids within about well, not even a year apart, mm. and. uh it's really nice to see like another mum DJing and like so visibly as well. I think you've done it in a way that I'm actually a bit shy to because I think I was like, I didn't even want to post about being pregnant during lockdown because I didn't, <laughs> I didn't have to because yeah. nobody saw the bump. And uh, you were like out there the DJing. The big reveal. <laughs> yeah, no, I did a big reveal on socials in like November and he was yeah. due in like Feb and I thought yeah. I'm going to have to do something at some point. And then like, it's, yeah, it's weird because I think there's so much sort of pressure on women to be like constantly available. And I was thinking, is my booking's going to get affected because I've got a baby? And I'm sure there probably are people who've assumed things without Mm -hmm. asking me that Mm -hmm. I don't want to do gigs. Like, I know that's happened, but equally, 
I feel like I don't want to hide it either because like mm. he's wicked. And I wondered like if you how you sort of think about balancing those two things like sort of publicly, I guess. Yeah, I mean, we're in such a different space now, aren't we? Which is really helpful, rewarding and exciting for moms that make music and DJ. So um, Emily Lenz is like, she's loving the bump and the DJ life. Alison Wonderland, <laughs> Helena Starr. I mean, the, the list goes on. And I think we've, we spoke off, off air earlier about the erasure of women. There would have been women that were pregnant and DJing. Um, mm. That wouldn't have been documented, you know, prior to to this this new influx of it. You know, Annie Mac would would have been pregnant at some point, point DJing, whether we made a thing of it or or not. But even prior to her, there would have been, you know, it's just the incarnation of being a woman that DJs. There would have been yeah. a bump somewhere at some point. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I think we were just always taught that, you know. It's an ageism thing as well. Don't become somebody's mother, you know, like um, you're not going to be seen as cool. You know, people won't see. Yeah, people won't see you as cool. Like nobody wants to see a mom DJing. I mean, and, that, and I heard that the other day, actually, up until recently. By a God, th- really? Yeah, That's no, awful. he was like, no, yeah, he says he didn't. He, I felt like he was maybe saying it from a, he was talking about his grey hairs. He had a little issue about his grey hairs. Right. And he was like, you know, but it's a bit different. Like I can just shave it off. But like nobody wants to see someone's mom DJing. Something like that. And I, no one wants I, to I see know. anyone's dad DJing either. Right, exactly. Oh, but I do actually want to see <laughs> yeah, someone's well, dad and mom DJing. Well, like, the point is we see people's dads DJing all, all the, the time. time and we don't yeah. know it. Exactly. Because it's not, Yeah. it's yeah. just not a part of their like identity as a DJ. Yeah. So I think that, you know, the, and there's all that idea of being like forever young, like, I'm be completely honest. I really couldn't give a fuck what an 18 year old thinks of me um, in trying to impress you, in trying to impress an 18 year old. It's just not, we're not going to connect and we're not, it's just not going to work. However, if you decide that you like what I do, then come along for the ride. But I cannot change myself and cut off corners of myself to please you. And I, and I loved being pregnant in the club and I love challenging that. You see some boys like, <gasps> and some girls like, can you be my mother? <laughs> you know, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> They wanted to see someone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was, you know, I think it was, it was important to, to go out there and be pregnant with the bump and, and DJ and, and now, you know, talk about Forrest. And, I, I, you know, maybe it coincided with lockdown. Because mm. the lockdown, I think so much of the DJ and perception of things were taken from us, you know. So yeah. I felt like even when a big chunk of my career has been paused, I was still able to make something of myself. So that was kind of my thinking behind getting pregnant, having a baby, because I was always like thinking that it would like slow down my career or stop my mm. career. But then I realised I was more in control of my career than I had thought. Yeah. So whether I take a year out or three months out or whatever, I'm in control of my career. And it's also trusting that your career will be there for you once you come back. Because I yeah. think that's the fear is like being absent. There's like a thing of, oh, people forget you or people, you know what I mean? And mm. so it can be frightening to say for any reason, not just pregnancy, but yeah. like for any reason, I to think it can be mm. frightening to take time out and to, to have the confidence to think people will want to Yeah, maybe talk some, about maybe you some won't, you. you know, and that's cool and that's fine. Um, yeah. But then you build, you build a new audience. Yeah. And that's okay as well. Like you can't like, yeah, you can't, uh, that whole thing of being like relevant, I always think about it, you know, and I always think about, especially like, yeah, relevancy is just like something that kind of is in my head. But the more I think about it, there's the older I get, the less I care about who would think if I'm relevant or not. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like that, right. That, You're their not opinions. Be for everyone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think moving to Six Music really helped um, broaden my audience um, coming from a youth station to a older station, I've been able to age 
mm. you know and I think yeah. some of my counterparts have ha- have haven't been able to um, from yeah. a, from a broadcasting point of view, point of view, and that, and that's and I think that's sad. You should be able to talk about your kids and talk about doing the washing and talk about you know like we talk about beat the basket. You know, it's like my my daily <laughs> my daily thing trying to beat the washing basket. But like you should be able to talk about these things because they they're human things. Having a baby yeah. is not an alien an alien thing. It's the and, most human thing you can do. Really. Yeah, and I get so many even men. I get so many men talking to me about it. How do you and Sam do it? What's the dynamic between you two? Like with me and my partner, we're really thinking about maybe having a baby, and we just look at you guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's nice. I think it's. I think it's really important. Um, it's an important part of life, an important part of, of you know, the evolution of a more inclusive space. And I think what I would love, I'd love to be in a position to be able to bring my family more mm. more because to shows um to where i travel because i feel like yeah you know the first year i took them everywhere and it was amazing and everyone's like oh my god forest comes everywhere i made no profit yeah i made no money last year and that and first also, year like also like let's be real traveling with a toddler is hard yeah and if you're doing a gig that's your focus isn't it it's like the, yeah. the mental energy to to be like oh is it nap time have they had a snack and oh i've got to go on stage and like yeah, minutes yeah. Is tough. the compartmentalizing, yeah. yeah. But then I, um, you know, it's nice to be able to have some gigs with, that they can come and travel with, and like more so, stuff for Sam to kind of pick and choose now rather than him have to having to be there. We can kind totally. of discuss it a bit more. Um, yeah. But I do love having them there, and I, but I do love traveling on my own. I had a great yeah. time in Australia. Lovely yeah, time. It's di- what's probably like. I, th- I guess you appreciate the sort of like solo time in a way. Love it. Love being in a hotel room. <laughs> love watching what I want to watch. Love being able to look out the window and read. Like going you know, to bed when you want. To bed, going to bed. Going to the gym. Yeah, I like I like my own time, and I haven't had it for a decade because <laughs> I've not yeah, lived in my yeah, own yeah. for a decade. So me going to play out to play away from home is also respite. Yeah, for sure. I remember you us having a conversation about. I, I think Forrest must have been about eight or nine months and you came out I was DJing in southeast London and you came out and we were chatting and you were like you said something where I was like yeah I totally feel that you said I love coming in from a gig having smashed it and I go in and I see my kids sleeping and I was yeah like, yes. that's a nice feeling as it's well. such a lovely moment at like four in the morning yeah. to kind of cr- cr- stump creep into the house and you've got your like sleepy child what for you is like the best thing about having like both of those things in your life like DJing and parenthood to me, a complete weekend would be great DJ gig, great radio show, family time. Yeah. That's like the free... If I get that Trinity in the weekend, like um, Sunday, I'm happy. What are your like, favourite moments when you look back on your DJ career so far? I say Sonar was a big deal. Sonar 2018, that mm. was huge. I say Glastonbury Icon stage last year, that was massive. Amazing. I would say um, Strawberry Fields in Australia, that festival, because I'd heard so much about it and to be on that lineup and have that reaction was just mm. beautiful. Uh, the Icon stage, 6am, I thought nobody would be there. They were there and people still talk to me about that set all the time. Yeah, Sonar changed my life. What, um, did you do, what did you do Like at the Icon stage that made people carry on talking about it? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I've played for the time. Yeah. I think that was it. I played for the time and the feel. There was I don't I felt it. I don't know. I can't. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Um, Sonar twenty eighteen. Um, they used to visualize those sets and put them on the live stream, so people all around the world used to watch. Like Sonar's quite a tastemaker festival. So I think wow. I got a year's worth of bookings off the back of that. Amazing. Um, and again, people will still say I saw you. At tw- I saw you at Sonar twenty eighteen. I think Amazing. people. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think the sets that I always know that have really connected with people is when I have been free. Mm. And I think in those moments, like free, maybe not, maybe I weren't the technical, technically the best or whatever, but I was having fun and I was there and I was enjoying it and I was connected with the crowd and, and the audience. Uh, Jams, I could chat to you for hours. It's so <laughs> lovely. Like having you on the podcast. Thank you so much. No worries. Yeah, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Wicked. I love talking to Jams. She's got such a beautiful energy and she's so honest, not just about the things that challenged her when she was starting, but the things that challenge her now. And I think it's a really nice antidote to this kind of image of perfection that so many DJs paint about themselves. I really enjoyed recording this episode and I hope you did too. If you liked it, please tell someone else who might like it. Give us a follow, leave a review and you can follow us at Dances for Buildings on socials. This episode was produced by Erica McCoy and the music was by Julia Tess. It was presented by me, Emily Dust. Thank you.